Thank you, Father, for feeding us this morning with, with your word and your own self. And we thank you that we come together hungry for you, hungry for your presence, knowing that by your spirit, you, Jesus, come low to us and meet us where we are and lift us to the Father. And we are grateful. And I pray this morning as we press on in our series together that you will both help the teacher who's teaching and those who are here to listen, that there will be clarity, that you would open our eyes and our hearts so that we can see wonderful things out of your law. And Lord, we know that if any of these things happen, it will be because of your kindness to us. And we pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son. Up is, I think, rather interesting. Now, think of Hosea, do a quiz here, uh, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. And these prophets, Hosea to Micah, these first six, sort of function back and forth the way in which they're structured from the northern kingdom of Israel to the southern kingdom. Hosea was a prophet to the north. Joel was a prophet to the south. Amos was a prophet to the north. Obadiah, a prophet in the south. Jonah, north, Micah, south. So Micah is a prophet in the southern kingdom or in the 7th century. This was the time, well, I mean, when things were really bad, right? Um, The Neo-Assyrian kingdom had flexed its muscles and the whole realm of the ancient Near Eastern world. They had moved their way eastward, I'm sorry, westward from their, we might consider Iran or or northern Iraq. They moved from that region coming into this particular area of Israel, they destroyed the northern kingdom in the 8th century, taking Samaria um, and, and the northern kingdom and raising that. The northern kingdom was never again after that. Then they moved their way down into the southern kingdom, cu- kind of hugging the coast there, the Mediterranean Sea. Go, they went into the plain area, which is where Micah is from. That, that the region is called the Shephelah region, the plain region, a little southwest of Jerusalem. They come into that region, these new Assyrians, under the leadership of Sennacherib, and it is bad, real bad. Make a little shepherd's crook with his armies moving up unto Jerusalem. Even in Micah chapter one, it says that the wound of Israel, the northern kingdom, came all the way to the gates of Jerusalem. Now here's Sennacherib coming all the way to the gates of Jerusalem. And then in an act of divine intervention, God preserves Judah, Jerusalem, under the leadership of Hezekiah. And the king of, of, of Assyria, of Neo-Assyria, is, is thwarted. And he goes, goes back. But despite the fact that God intervened and did not allow the temple at that moment and the royal palace at that moment to be destroyed by the kingdoms of Assyria, the infrastructural damage that had been done to the southern kingdom was really um, significant. All these little towns that you read about in Micah chapter 1 had just been seeing the devastation of, of war. Um, and this is the context out of which Micah is writing That's the geopolitical mess that's going on in the ancient Eastern world, which we blink about a hundred years, and then we're into the Neo-Babylonians coming through and doing the same thing under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar. And this time, the southern kingdom is destroyed in 586 B.C. So that's the kind of world we're living in in the prophets. There's this natural disasters we read about in the book of Joel. By the way, what a great anthem today, right out of Joel 2.1. I, I, I like that. 
a blow the trumpet, right? The, the day of the Lord is here, which is not really a happy time, but it was, an, it was well, well sung. Um, but blow the trumpet, the day of the Lord is here. Uh, the locusts come, these locusts, which, which are, reflect a, 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 na- a natural plague, but also become a metaphor for um, nations that set themselves up over against the, the southern kingdom. It's, it, this, is, this is the world of the prophets. But the prophets live within the reality of their own world. I'm going to read these words to you in Micah 4. Micah 4, verse 9. Now. Micah 4, verse 11. Now. Micah 5, verse 1. Now. And I don't really like the way which our English Bibles do this. In the Hebrew text, Micah 5.1 in our text is really Micah 4.11. It's still back in chapter 4, which is probably where it should be. You have this repeated emphasis in chapter 4, now, now, now. And if you scoot back to the beginning of Micah chapter 4, it is a carbon copy almost to the word. There's some interesting differences, but almost to the word of the text that we dealt with last week in Isaiah chapter 2. Behold, in the latter days, the mountain of the Lord will be established, and all the nations will stream to it to be caught the Torah of the Lord. And then they will beat their swords into plowshares, and then they'll take their pruning their spears and turn them into pruning hooks. Every man and every woman will dwell in their own house with their own fig tree, drinking their own wine, and they will not learn war anymore. Right? It'll be a, it'll be a memory of the past. That's the hope of the future kingdom when peace will be established when there is shalom. But what does Micah 4 do to us from a temporal standpoint? It leaves us in a kind of temporal whiplash. That's a future day. But now, listen to these nows. Verse 9. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? And there's not. Verse 11. Now, many nations are assembled against you, saying, let her be profaned. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 1. Now, you are walled about. With a wall, siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the cheek of the ruler of Israel. So we're moving back and forth between a future hope and a current reality. Between the future hope of what God will do in hope for his people, that he will not forget his election of them, that he will not forget his own self-determination to be a God for this people. That is the hope. That's what we believe. Yet there is the reality of now. We're in the now. And it's a difficult moment. So you move from chapter 5, verse 1. Now you're walled about. Now your leader has been struck on his cheek. Now, and we'll put this in proper terminology, think about with the southern kingdom. Here comes Jehoiakim, who was the king when Nebuchadnezzar invaded in, in the latter part of the 7th century. Here's, he's the king, and now he's getting carted off to Babylon as a prisoner of war. Where's, where's your king? The kings are moving. This is, it's a moving target. Siege has been laid upon the king. His cheek has been struck. That's the now reality. And in that now reality, we move to chapter 5, verse 2, which says, But you, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah. Uh, This is going to sound a little, uh, I don't know, maybe hyperbolic, and it probably is, but you'll, you'll get the point. Um, this is one of those small words, this this disjunction, this disjunctive um, word, B-U-T. 
that I'm actually growing really, really fond of. Let me just say, I am really fond of that word, right? Why? Because that word within the Old Testament, especially the Old Testament, sets up the contrast that we so badly need. This is the now moment. This is the reality of your existence now. But, but, or, or maybe if we put it in, because obviously Hebrew is not English, maybe if we put it in, in English grammar language, there's a semicolon there, right? There's not a period in the now moment. It's a semicolon with more that's coming within this larger paragraph. We've got girls from college. I don't mean to go into grammar. I'm sorry about that. That's boring. Um, but this is a semicolon that moves us into, into the future reality. But now, think about this from the standpoint of the Psalms. The Psalms. You don't have to know Hebrew, I don't think, to appreciate this B-U-T language. But it's really poignant in the Hebrew language as well. But what do you have in these lament songs? I'm dying. I'm in the pit. I'm in Sheol. My enemies have stood against me. I don't even know if you're real anymore, Psalm 73. Or at least real according to my own standards. I just don't know. And there's that now moment. Then you move on, and there's always this transition to, but I have trusted in your unfailing love. But I saw you raised in the sanctuary and knew that you are a God forever. But I knew that the end would come, and you would remain glorious and victorious. It's that B-U-T. And this is what we have here in the prophets. The reality of the now that leads into the future of the hope. But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah. Even though you're seeing right now your king getting carted off to the Babylonians. Even though now you feel the geopolitical threat of the surrounding nations as they wage war against you. That is your now. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrata. I'm going to talk about this here with this verse. Um, I call this first part here, humble beginnings. Um, Bethlehem. Um, any of you been to Bethlehem? You've seen it? Um, a lot of you have. Wow. Um, I, I, I was on a, I, mean, I don't know if you can really count this. I was in Jerusalem for one day. Uh, that doesn't really count for much. Um, but, you know, we packed a lot in. There was some strife that was going on in Bethlehem, so we had to see it from a distance. Um, I can still sort of picture of being along the side of the road with the kind of angular uh, sloping mountain coming off the side, and there's Bethlehem over the way, and, and uh, it's, mod it's a modest place. Bethlehem of the clan of Ephratah, another way of saying Bethlehem. You, Bethlehem, Ephratah, who are little to be among the clans of Judah. Little, few in number. Uh, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient of days. What does this say about this contrast of your now as it looks forward to the hope of the future? And let's just be fair. We see these things more clearly now, I believe, in retrospect from the standpoint of a full Two Testament canon, Old and New Testament. We read the Old Testament through the lens of our New Testament understanding. I, I, I understand that that's the case. So we see things with more color and more depth and more hue. I understand that. But here we have the prophet saying and promising that the future coming ruler would have humble beginnings. It would come from Bethlehem, which was David's town. This is a claim about the Davidic lineage. David came from Bethlehem. But think about David. 
Right? This is one of these. How many of you read this uh, Jesus storybook uh, Bible to your kids? You know this uh, Sally Lloyd Jones. I think we have it in our bookstore here. It's a great Bible storybook for kids. And you know, I, my, my boys love to read the one about David and his his being anointed. Here you have all the brothers lined up, and Saul. I mean, Samuel is told to go to to, to go to Jesse's house because the king is going to come from there, and so he's got his oil in tow. He's ready to anoint a new king, and he says, "Bring out your boys, Jesse." So here they all come out, manly men apparently, valiant warriors, and he lines them up and he goes from the oldest all the way to the youngest, and it's just none of them. It's not the ones that Samuel thought for sure, that's a kingly kind of guy. I mean, Saul, if you remember, the first king was a kingly kind of guy, stood head and shoulders above everyone else. He was a, he was a king. He looked like a king. He played the part of the king. But then when it comes to this new king, this Davidic king, who will become the archetypal king that shapes the hope for the whole of Israel and the whole of the world, how does it go down? Well, all the sons come through, and then uh, uh, Samuel says to Jesse, is this all? Because uh, we've got trouble here. So I've got most of my youngest sons out there among the sheep, and you know I can bring him in. And he brings him in, and he's ruddy, which isn't really a compliment. He's kind of rough-looking guy, comes in, and... There's David, and all of a sudden, he's anointed king. Why? Because God, and this is, I love this verse, God does not look on outward appearances. God looks on the heart. So here's David who's anointed in humble beginnings. David who's from Bethlehem, a humble town. Um, that is a pattern, I believe, that we see within the framework of the Old Testament. God chose Israel. The least. Do you remember this in the in the Pentateuch? The Deuteronomy chapter uh, 6? I didn't choose you because you were great. I didn't choose you because you were the noblest or the mightiest. I chose you because I chose you. I chose you because you were weak. Because you were ignoble. Because you didn't really have any claim to a certain kind of lineage. You had nothing. And I set my affection on you. That's how uh, he does this. And then you think about Jesus' birth and ministry is in accord with this particular aspect of God's character, with this claim here in Matthew 5, 2. Bethlehem Ephrata, you're little among the clans of Judah, but out of you will come a great one. So here's Jesus, whose birth and whose ministry lines up exactly with that, not just in the mortar shot of he was born in Bethlehem, although that's definitely part of it as well, not just the Bethlehem claim where his birth is, but all of the conceptual baggage that comes along with being born in Bethlehem, not being born in Jerusalem, the epicenter of Israel's religious and political life. He wasn't born there. He was born in this sort of small town on a Judean hillside where there's lots of shepherds and common folk. And then Jesus is reared in Nazareth. You can remember that nice appellation that they made of Jesus. Can any good thing come from where? From Nazareth? I don't know what would be comparable to that. I need to be very careful here. Um, <laughs> uh, you fill in the blank, right? Can any good thing come from there, right? I mean, this is the, this is the claim that's being made about, about Jesus and his beginning. And that is a theme, by the way, that we begin to see as well, even as it moves into Paul's reflection on what it means to be a Christian. Because the Jews look for a sign and the Greeks want Sophia. They want wisdom. They want philosophy. 
But for those of us who are being saved, the wisdom of God and the power of God are found in the cross of Jesus Christ, which is foolishness to the world, and it's an offense to the Jews. It's an offense. And Paul says, and he's quoting here Jeremiah, he says, that's why not many noble, not many wise people, but God chose the foolish things of this world, the ignoble things of this world, to confound, to confound the wise. I mean, this says something, I think, to us about how God orders his world, about how God orders his kingdom. Our identity as people, as humans, is primarily defined. Our nobility is primarily defined despite birth and despite class in our election, in our being chosen in our union with Christ. That's our primary claim to any kind of nobility. And that, frankly, can be an offense. But this is what Jesus does. He's, he's offensive at times. He's offensive in his birth. He's offensive in his ministry. He's offensive with who he's having dinner with. He's offensive. Why? Because that's the claim of the gospel. And it starts all the way back here with Micah and, and all throughout the prophets. It's the ignoble. It's the Bethlehem. It's the small. I read a really good book. I, I like this book by a, a fellow named Dale Allender on, uh, entitled Leading with a Limp, where he wrestles with the way in which the Bible constructs its notion of what real leadership is about, what's, where, where it's really, especially for those who are leading in the life of the church. And the theme that he finds again and again, where you move from the Old Testament all the way into the New, and especially in the person and work of Jesus himself, is that God likes leaders who limp. I mean, we kind of like, I mean, let's just be honest, I know what I like. I like the sort of, you know, magnanimous, big personality CEO type Donald Trump, you're fired, right? It's like, wow, that's, that's real strength on display right there. Right? But that's not God's pattern, is it? It's not God's pattern for leadership. There's a sense in which this, our, our, our heritage, our nobility being defined by Bethlehem and not Jerusalem has something to say about the way in which we engage others. And we see this here in Micah chapter 5. Well, I'm ranting.